Oh, when the Holy Spirit moves you so much you can't just sit still, right? All right, well, we'll be in John chapter 13 today. So Dwight D. Eisenhower has a leadership quote. It says, the sign of a good leader is being able to get the man standing next to you to go over to a faraway place to do something that you wanted done all the while while he thinks it's him who wanted to do it in the first place. See, that's a sign of transformational leadership that's moving in a place where you, you can move people to feel so passionate about what the goal is or what the mission is or what the cause is that they take it on on themselves and they literally become their own leader inside of it. That's a transformational leadership. And see, what we're moving into here in John 13 is we're moving away from his public ministry. This is the last night. This is during the, uh, the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper. And this is what he starts out with is a lesson on leadership. Why? Because he's preparing his disciples, the apostles, the 12 minus the one, Judas, who's going to betray him. And we'll read about that a little bit today and a little bit more in, in two weeks because I will be gone next, or I'll be gone next week. And uh, what we're going to look at is, is what does it mean to be a transformational leader? What does it mean to be a leader who is a servant to those that they're leading? Because there's power inside of it, but there's also submission of those who follow inside of that also. It's a beautiful lesson to learn for the church because if we're not leading as Jesus taught us to lead, if we're not walking other people to understand that, then we're failing to get the greater concept of what heaven's sign of leadership looks like versus the world's sign of leadership. And so we have to kind of have this sense of understanding that Jesus in this lesson, the washing of the disciples' feet, is teaching them an important lesson about how they are to lead the new revolution that is about to come. Think about it. What we experience today is built upon what the disciples set out to begin that was built off of what Christ had taught them during his mission and his ministry. That's an important and powerful message inside of us because it teaches us something about how maybe we should shift and look at how we lead and how the church, big church, not just us here at River of Life, but the whole church across all of the world should really look at how its leaders should be handling themselves before the congregation, before the disciples. All right, so this is as much on me and our, our leadership team as it is on you because eventually, I have a question. Anybody here have kids? Raise your hand. Anyone here at, at work have someone that they work side by side with? How about anyone at school that has other students that you work in groups with? Right, so at any point in our lives, we have an opportunity to show ourselves as a leader. Inside transformational leadership, I don't have this, I should have grabbed the diagram, I didn't think about it when I was uh, prepping, but leadership looks like a cross, and you're at the center of the cross. And if you look up, that's where you're, your higher-ups are, those people who you, you deem as being your boss or your leader, however it is. Down below are those who are the people that you lead, but then to the sides are the people that you're peers with, your, your people that you work alongside with. See, leadership is something that we constantly should be doing inside our lives. And that's what Jesus is about to teach them. So why don't we go ahead and stand as we read from the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 13, 1 through verse 20. If you need to sit down, it's a little bit longer reading, but if you need to sit down, please feel, so. feel free to do so. It begins, Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, 
to betray him. And Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. And so he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. And he came to Simon Peter who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. And you will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, and this is why he said, not all of you are clean. Now when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, do you know what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. And truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. Now if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking about all of you. I know those I have chosen but the scripture must be fulfilled. The one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. Truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come into your presence to hear your word to be made wiser to be drawn closer to you through knowing who you truly are, what you have truly taught us. And so, Lord God, we open our hearts and our minds at this moment to to hear your truth, to understand you deeper in a way that transforms our heart, for you are still our leader, and you still serve in that position. For your cross is everlasting, and the debt that was paid is in full. And so, God, we come before you knowing that we are yours. For the title, Lord and Savior, is one of leadership, of one of us in submission and you leading us in the direction we ought to go. And so, God, we find ourselves before you, offering ourselves up as a living sacrifice that you, through your will and through your Holy Spirit, will make us whole and bring us into your presence. Lord, we pray this in your holy name, amen. Keeps on wanting to bounce around on me. So we need to stop and take a little bit about what historically is happening here. He's moved out of public view. He's now sitting with his disciples and probably a small group of people outside just because they're being attended to. But it's right at the Passover festival and Jesus has known for quite a while what he's walking towards. He's not 
oblivious to the fact that he's moving towards the cross, that he's moving back towards a point where he's gonna return to be in the presence of God. He's not walking around aimlessly going like, well, what should I do today? He's got purpose and direction and he's moving that direction. So he comes in with a full knowledge of what's about to happen. And further on, John, the author of the gospel, lets us know a little bit more that Jesus knew who was about to betray him. This wasn't a secret He's talking about the divine knowledge that Jesus has, the the knowledge of everything that's going on. And so Jesus does everything we're about to start to read from here until chapter uh, 17, knowing everything that's about to take place. That's an amazing thing, because I want you to think about this. If you knew that the person across from you was about to sentence you to death, would you give them your bread? Would you break bread with that person? Heck no. I don't think there's a single one of us that'd be like, oh, I love you so much, let's break bread because I know you're gonna go out and, and, and sentence me to death. But Jesus knows all this, yet he still does this. And Judas is right in the midst of it. We're gonna hear more about that in, in, in two weeks, like I said, but we need to be mindful of what's going on here. We need to know who's at the table. Thomas, who will doubt him, Peter, who will deny him, are all sitting at this table. It speaks to the nature of humanity. Each of the, each of the disciples kind of carry one of those key things that we're told to be very careful about with God. And so they're all sitting at the table. Verse two, it picks up. Now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas to betray him. And Jesus knew that the Father had given him everything. He knows what his mission is. He's not hiding back from it and he's ready to move forward with it. And so he knows that he's received the cup, right? This is what we hear in the final and we're not gonna cover that a whole lot, but he's received the cup. Can you guys like hear every like accent? All right, let's see if that works a little bit better so you're not catching everything. And so Jesus knows what's going on. He knows that he's received the mission from the Father. He knows what the Father's empowered him to do and given him the strength to walk with. And so he's moving forward. And he knows that he's returning to his Father. He's going home, right? The same thing we all hope for. And so he got up from supper. He laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel and tied it around himself. Now there's a significance in that verse. See, that's how a slave would have been presented in the time. So removing his garment, going down to his like, you know, bare nothingness in all intenseness, and then taking a towel and wrapping it around is how they identified their slaves. The towel is a, more like a cotton, it's not like what we think of it as a terry cloth uh, towel nowadays, but it's more of like a cotton wrap around. The cover, just, you know, the, the, the parts that need to be kept modest in, in modern days since the, the fall of man. And, uh, and, and, and that's what we use to identify slaves at the time. He's bringing himself from the elevation of where he's going to declare, you call me master, you call me teacher, here in a little bit, down to a slave. Yeah, I'm letting that sink in for a little bit. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, brought himself to a place of slave, or being a slave. Not to humanity, but to God. To be underneath that lordship that's talking about. It's a powerful statement and not a single one of them at the table would have not understood what was going on. This was a common tradition inside the Jewish populations. The very fact that they would walk all day long in this towel if you were a slave, that was the clothing you were given. It dated all the way back to the time that they spent in Egypt. 
or that's what they would have worn in Egypt. So it had great mental impact when they saw their, their teacher, their master, put himself in this position. And not only that, but then he draws water and starts washing their feet, which was another thing that only slaves did. Or young children in the house who weren't considered very important yet. See, Jesus takes all the haughtiness that he could have at this time, all this sense of this last supper and being held and and lifted up and, and praised and worshiped and glorified in that moment. He moves himself to a place of slavery, servitude. See, inside that is the lesson of being a servant leader. It's making those around you more important than yourself. See, but now, we may sit there and say, well, I'm not a leader of the church. I'm not the pastor. I'm not a deacon. I'm not an elder. But the very fact is, is if you disciple anyone or if you wish to bring the message of God, you better do it with a servant's heart. You better do it as the servant leader taught us to do because if we bring it through the righteousness or the self-righteousness that we assign to it, we're no different than the Pharisees because now we bring it from a point of you need to be instead of we are all here. See, a servant leader walks in and sits there and says, how can I help you accomplish what you need to accomplish? How can I walk beside you on this journey so that you can grow just as much as I can grow and so that you may be glorified as I am glorified in this process? Right? We're told that in the end times, we will be glorified through Jesus Christ. Not prior to, but with him in the final days. So as a leader, that's what he's drawing us towards is how do I walk beside you? How do I mentor? This is, remember, this is a lesson he's teaching the disciples to prepare them for the ministries they're gonna be off and doing here after he goes to heaven and returns to, to God's right hand. He's in a place of setting himself to serve those he is coming to. He does that hugely from the cross, no doubt about it. We can't look at the cross and not see his servant heart. Because why? Because everything that's done on the cross isn't for him, but it is for us. It's to right a wrong that we started as in humanity, not me personally, but us as humans, or not you personally. It's to right a wrong that had been continued throughout the generations and generations of Israelites who kept on turning their back to him. It's to right a wrong that will continue to happen for eternity until he returns. See, everything from the cross is a servant's heart, but leading us to a place of strength and leading us to a place of salvation. See, the concept of getting a person to do what you want that's over there, all the while while them thinking that they're doing it for their own cause, is exactly what Jesus was saying here. Take what I'm doing and use it for yourself. Benefit from what I am teaching you. Move forward in the way that I am showing you to move forward. And you won't even hear the lesson half the time because, why? You saw it mentored, you saw it done, it was coached to you, and you forget it until it comes back up and now you find yourself in that place. Why? Because he approached it from a place of humbleness. A place of not being assigned but having received the respect that came with it. And so he's going down and he's washing. I want you to think the 12 of them are sitting there and he's washing foot by foot by foot. It doesn't say where Simon Peter is in the in this series. Nobody really knows where he was sitting at the table. I know we've got beautiful paintings that assigned everybody a special position, but those are all from about the 1500s, 1600s. Nobody really knows where anyone was sitting at that particular moment. 
other than the fact that there were a few of them that were probably arguing who should be where, as we find in some of the other Gospels. But we don't know where Simon is, but Jesus comes to Simon, and he goes to wash his feet, and, and Simon does this thing, like, Lord, Lord are, are, are you going to wash my feet? And it loses it in the, in the English transition. In the Greek transition, there's actually the stuttering, the way that they use the words. There's like a, a discombobulation of how he speaks the words. And so there's an obvious sign that like he's kind of studying, like he's astounded that Jesus would come and wash his feet, which would make sense, right? Because only slaves and those of lesser, this thing's fallen off me again. That only people of lesser status would have been doing. So he's obviously sitting there like, what the heck? But he's watched Jesus and no one else has made this argument yet. This is the other thing I find funny, that it's Peter who is going to deny Christ that brings this argument up, like, hey, you can't do this. Why would you wash my feet? And Jesus answers them, what I'm doing, you don't understand, or you don't realize now, but afterwards, you will understand. We have 20-20 vision on hindsight. We know exactly what that means because we know what the cross is. We understand that concept that through the cross he's fulfilling that he has to serve them, that he has to come and cleanse them to make them whole in order for them to be clean. But they don't have that view. They're still waiting for it all to happen. And so here they sit, not understanding that, that the cross, that, that what he's doing, the, the ceremonial cleansing of their feet is a precursor to what the cross is going to cleanse out of all of us. And then, Peter being Peter, well then, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head too, then Jesus, come on, like, just wash me all. I'm sorry, man, it's, it's comical. It really is. Because I sit there and I think, how many times have I sat there and said, you know, Jesus Christ has come to die on the cross for me and I refuse to let what he has done for me actually take place. See, that's what Peter is arguing right now. What he's saying is sitting there like, oh, listen, don't wash my feet. Christ has come to do the task. He has prepared, he has readied the water, he has wrapped himself, he's, he's already done it to other people and then he shows up in, in front of Peter, in front of ourselves and he offers up, hey, I've got the cross for you, I've done the work already, I'm prepared to give you salvation and what do we do? We sit there and say, <laughs> I'm good. I got this. I can do it, I got it, I ha- I've got it handled. Jesus' response you know, if I, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Like, if you don't accept who I am, if you don't accept that I'm here to do what I'm here to do, you can't be part of me. You can't walk beside me. You can't walk with me. You can't take the message I've gotten and give it because you don't understand it. You're just missing the point. Like I said, Peter gets all overzealous. Well, if that's the case, if I can't be with you, then wash my hands and wash my feet. Wash my hands, my head. And Jesus tells him, one who has bathed doesn't need to wash everything again. Now, there's a lot of argument whether this goes back to baptism or not, but the, the general consensus is that this really talks about what he is going to do on the cross. It's that 
foreshadowing of the, of the salvation that's going to come from the cross. That his blood is going to cleanse us all so that we will no longer have to bathe to be cleansed. We won't have to partake in that sense of, uh, of ritualistic bathing anymore, like what they would have had to do in Israel in the temple. What he's doing is he's setting that new covenant up so when we get to the, the Lord's Supper here in a couple weeks, we have an understanding of, of what his actions on the cross actually really count for. They count for all sin, all brokenness, that all cleansing that needs to be done through the cross has happened. And so we no longer have to ritualistically cleanse ourselves in fullness. We just have to kind of help keep ourselves clean. And we don't understand that from here. We get that a little bit later on that we'll get to here in a second. Or in, not quite a second, but in a few minutes. But Peter misses it. But Jesus has to teach him it. Jesus can't let it go. And so he says, listen, you don't need to wash everything except his feet, but he's completely clean when he washes his feet. Why? Because he's bathed. Chapter 15, verse 3, we get an understanding of that we are bathed by the words that Jesus taught us. And we're going to cover that more deeply when we get to chapter 15. But that's a, a link here to this section it's an understanding that's a little bit deeper for us to understand that because of everything that he's taught, if we believe what Jesus has taught up to this point, if we believe that Jesus Christ is who he is, we're cleansed by that belief. It's not us doing anything. It's not us going into the water and cleansing ourselves. But no, it's what Jesus has done for us that cleanses us. See, by ourselves, we're like Peter. Lord God, why would you wash my feet? That, that's not right. I'm not willing to be like that. I'm not willing to accept what you've done for me or what you're about to do for me in this case. But the fact of it is, is if we're not willing to accept what Christ has done for us, then how can we accept Christ because we don't understand him in fullness? We don't understand everything that he has done for us. And so when we move into this understanding of letting Christ do what he has come to do for us, and surrendering ourselves and just sitting back and letting him cleanse us. Instead of trying to do it ourselves, how many of you still struggle with something that is broken in your life and you're trying to do it yourself instead of releasing it to Jesus Christ and letting him do the work that he's already done? The work is finished. All you have to do is accept it and receive it. Don't be like Peter. Don't sit there and say, hey, no, Lord, I refuse to let you do this because it's below your status because he's already done the work for it. And so we could sit and relax and let it happen through him. Now there's a little bit of a, a, of a twist to that here a little bit later on in verse 17. But I want to finish this real quick. See, he says this and he's talking to all of them while Judas is sitting right there. He knows the heart of Judas. He knows that Satan has already grasped onto it, that the devil has already worked his magic and that Judas has already surrendered his heart to, to the evil in the world. And yet he still sits there and washes all their feet. If you think you are so bad that you can't be saved by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, you're wrong. If you hold yourself in shame and guilt for what you have done because you feel that Jesus' actions on the cross don't cover what you did, you're wrong. For Christ came for all, John three sixteen. 
for the whole world to be saved simply through believing that he is who he says he is, for accepting him for the work that he has done. It doesn't matter what has transpired prior to your conviction and belief, your repentant heart coming before to be rejuvenated by the Holy Spirit. His work has covered it all. For he serves someone greater than all of us. He moves on and he gives the meaning. He's like, hey, obviously you guys aren't getting this. So when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, so he removes the towel and he he gets back into his normal clothing and reclines next to him. That's an interesting thing. Um, In the Middle East, they don't sit when they they eat. They kind of sit on a long couch and you kind of lay back. It's really weird. I don't know if so you can eat more because your stomach's stretched out or what. I don't know why they do it. Um, But that's how they handle it. They don't sit at a table like we do. They, they kind of sit back away from it and they have like a little table that lies like just off the floor that they pull their food off of. And so he's sitting like this with them, which is a very relaxed, very personal, because as you're leaning back, you know, you're leaning against people. And you're sitting there talking and it's very intimate and very personal because heads are like right here. They, their concept of personal space and friendship is much different than ours. And so they, they'll be right here and you'll see, I mean, like it was the weirdest thing to see in Iraq, guys walking down the road, holding hands as they would talk, pulling each other in and, and, and being like here to here, discussing things with themselves uh, or between each other. And it was the weirdest thing for American soldiers to get used to because you'd go to these meet and greets and you'd sit there and they'd pull you in and they'd be like right here and you're like, I just want a lot of space. Personal bubble, people, personal bubble. Give me space. It took a lot for us to get over that concept of like having them in here, but this is, this is what they're like. And so they're reclined and they're sitting. And, and think about it being very intimate in proximity. Much different than what we're used to. And he says, do you know what I have done for you? So obviously he knows. He's got the question. He's asking the question. It's that rhetorical question. Like, yeah, obviously you're all confused. Let's, let's t- take a moment. You call me teacher and Lord. And, and you're speaking apparently since that is what I am. I am the Lord. I am. He's declared it several times already by this point. There's no secret about who he is to the disciples. And they are. They are his disciples and he is their teacher. And so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, something only a slave should do, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So you should remove these statuses. You should break down the who's higher than who and who should be responsible for this and you should see each other as equals. You should enter to a place of humbleness before each other and serve each other. Why? Because you're serving a greater concept. You're serving a greater thing than yourself. And so neither one of you or any one of you are better than the other because what you serve is so much greater than individual that you should work together. You should serve each other and serve each other as I have served you as a slave, as, as, as each other being each other's master. For I have given you, and that's why he says so, for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. So if I'm willing to do this and I'm your Lord and I'm your master and the Son of God, which has been clearly shown through the miracles and, and the decrees that he's made, and I'm willing to do this for you, then why would you not do it for each other? And that takes us back into that lesson of leadership. If we think that our leadership puts us at a higher status, that everybody should bow down before us, and that everybody should do what we command, and that we are the only ones who have good ideas, then we are leading in a wrong way. 
And all too often, that's what they tell us in the, in the world is that, you know, the, the leader should have the vision and it should be pushed out constantly and that we, everyone else just kind of lines up and does what needs to happen. Well, I should say this carefully. That's not the new leadership model. Because we've learned that leadership model does not work. Unfortunately, the church seems to really be struggling with that concept. You have entire church systems, entire denominations that are set up on hierarchy. And you do what the next higher level says, otherwise you're cast out and pushed out. But it affects us in the congregational church too because what happens is, is instead of you understanding that you have a role, you have a purpose, that God has gifted you to do what God has gifted you to do and that there's an essence in that role to, to participate in that way as the Holy Spirit has gifted you, you sit there and you look to your leadership to get everything done. Not understanding that your leadership there is to make, make it possible for you, you as the congregation to get done what needs to happen. I'm going to let that sit for a second, yeah. A church is only as strong as the people that attend it. A church is only as strong as the congregation comes together and, and pursues the mission that God has given us. It's not your leadership's responsibility to get it done. It's the church's responsibility to answer the call that God has given us, exactly what Jesus is teaching here. Don't look at yourselves as being haughty. Be humble and understand that the mission you serve is greater than anything that we could ever participate in on our own. He's asking them to set aside rank and structure and to serve each other so that the mission gets accomplished, that the call that God has given is what gets taken care of. And so as leaders, we have to be cautious not to sit there and put the hierarchy there where you have to, you know, everything has to be locked up with what we say. But as a congregation, you have to understand that you need to be a driving force along with it because we are all equal. We should all kneel before each other and wash each other's feet a very humbling place to be, especially depending on the feet you're washing. But the fact of it is this. When we come into a place of servant leadership as Jesus instructed and taught here to his disciples, we start finding what unity in Christ truly means and we start understanding what the body can do and function properly and what great things can happen through that. See, this is the lesson he taught just before he went to the cross. That I'm willing to humble myself to a point of death. That I'm willing to do what is so important and, and, and lose any status I have in humanity so that God's purpose can come to life. That God's purpose can continue to move forward and that great things will come from it. My question is, is, Doug challenged us, you know, do you want to see this church explode with God's power being poured out on it? But if we aren't following God, why would he bless us in a way that he's going to pour out his spirit on us? If we're not willing to, to answer the call that he's given us, where would we find ourselves? Let's not be like Peter and deny what God has already prepared to do for us or has already done for us on the hindsight. What's accepted and be made pure through that action so that we can answer the call with humility as we move forward. Continues on, he says in verse 16, Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. It doesn't just say you're blessed if you know these things. He says you have to know them and then go do them. So it's, it's not just enough to know, like, well, I should wash people's feet. That's the right thing to do. That's, that's not good enough. 
if you want God's blessing, you have to go and wash people's feet. You have to act in a way that is in accordance with the knowledge that has been given to you. That's what we pray about all the time here at, at River of Life, isn't it? It's like, God, transform my heart so it's not just sitting in my brain, but it actually moves me to be more like you, right? That's what we challenge ourselves with all the time. This isn't a sense of works into, into salvation. That's not at all what he's arguing. What he's saying is, listen, it's not just good enough to know these things. You have to practice these things. If you know that I'm the Lord and Savior and, and that, that I've done these great things for you, then you have to trust that that work has been done. That's part of the doing it side of it. So it's not just a going out and washing feet, but it's actually letting it affect who you are. Letting it change your heart, change your mind, that you no longer think that you're responsible for making yourself worthy, but that his work has been enough. And if you know that, if you know that he has made himself the servant leader and that he is willing to do these things for you, as in washing feet, and which we know in hindsight to be a foreshadow of going to the cross and cleansing us through his blood, if we know that, then we have to allow that to affect us. We have to know it's not good enough just to know it, but we have to do it. We have to release ourselves to that fact. We have to release ourselves to a place of understanding that what God has done on the cross has cleansed us, has taken away our sin, and given us a chance to be made whole. Then, if we can do that, then we're blessed. Why? Because now we have the hope and joy that the gospel gives us. Because we're no longer trapped by guilt and shame and, and feeling that we need to check the box to be good enough to be God's. But no, instead we know that the work's already been done and that in our belief in Jesus Christ, accepting him before us, preparing to cleanse us, that it's been done. And for those of us who have experienced it, for those of us who have actually gotten to a place where we've released and said, God, what you've done is glorious and praised him and worshipped him for the for the good that he has done by the cross and what has affected on our lives. You wonder why we always have a smile on our face? It's because we know where we sit. It never is a question in our heart. Why? Because we've done, not just known. We've moved it from just being cerebral up here in the brain and we've moved it to an actuality in our lives. We've just accepted the fact that Christ is who Christ is and that he's done the work that he's done and that I am what he has made me. We live in that. We just dwell in that process, or in that, in that place. That's what he's talking about there. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. If you can get to the place where you release your shame and guilt because of what God has done for you, then you are blessed because you no longer carry that shame and guilt in your heart anymore. You no longer feel a need to prove yourself worthy because you've already been made worthy by what he has done. He says, I am not speaking about all of you, for I know those I have chosen. But the scriptures must be fulfilled, and the one who eats my bread has raised his heel against me. Let's take a moment to explain that. The one who eats my bread, to make a covenant in the old world, you would have ate bread, you would have broke bread and ate salt together. That was how they kind of sealed their deals. So in other words, the very fact that Judas sat across from him at the table and ate bread, broke bread, enjoyed a meal together with him, put him in league with Jesus, and yet his heart was not made, and so he betrays him. And that's where you get the, has raised his heel against me. See, it's one of the things we teach our, our soldiers going into Islamic countries, is, is you don't raise your heel to someone. 
So whenever you sit in a chair, your feet are both firmly planted on the ground. You never would cross your feet like this because that's raising a heel to someone. That's an offensive statement. It goes back to the, to the old days of being like an affront or to step or to crush or to, to pulverize someone. And so the problem with that is, is if you do that in those countries, they get very offensive very quick. Now, now, in our world, we don't think about it at all. We sit with our legs crossed all the time and have our feet up and, and pointed at each other. But now they're reclined and to raise a heel would be to put it up in someone's face. To make it very apparent that you're showing them the bottom of the foot, the part that's always dirty because it's always on the ground. It's always tracking up the dust and the dirt that's there. And so this is the picture that we have to get in our mindset. It's something that's a little bit odd for us, but think of it this way is the part that's always dirty, the part that is not cleansed unless you just have cleaned your foot, but the second you put it back down, it touches the dirt. That's the part you don't show people. And so what he's saying here is that Judas, having broken bread, having made covenant with me, having shown himself to be my ally, is going to raise his heel against me. That's a heart issue. Judas walked with Jesus Christ for three years, learned, sat with them, witnessed the miracles, but he never released his heart to Jesus Christ. Christian, I can tell you this right now, there are many Christians who are in the same boat that Judas is. They know of Christ, they've seen his miracles, they've heard who he has claimed himself to be, but they've never released their heart to him. They've never surrendered to believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. And so why do we have churches that aren't churches? Why do we have people who confess Christ but walk in sin constantly? Because they haven't released their heart. They've held it back. He's come to their feet to cleanse them and they've refused to allow him to do so. They're knowledgeable, they know everything that's going on, but they refuse. They'd rather chase Satan, his will, versus God's will. And so he says, I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he, that foreknowledge that he's got. And truly I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me, and and the one who receives me receives him who sent me. See, when we accept Jesus Christ for who he is, we accept God in his fullness, in his, in his grandeur, in his glory. And when we receive each other, when, when Christ sends another Christian into our lives and we receive them open-armedly and, and we come together and we're willing to wash each other's feet, we receive him in and amongst us. So truly, I tell you, whoever receives anyone I send receives me. So when we come to each other, whether it's in time of need or it's in time of, of um, you know, challenge or accountability for stuff, we should receive each other openly, knowing that we're receiving Christ in that moment because he is who sends us, because we're his followers. And when we do that, we receive God. I want you to think about that one. When we receive each other, therefore receiving Christ, therefore receiving God into our lives. How much more power can we ask to receive into our lives? See, we have to be more humble about who we are. When someone walks in before us and says, hey, I have a question, or hey, I'm concerned about this, we have to be open to it. When, when a fellow Christian walks in and says, hey, I need, I need help through this, we need to be open to it. Now, there's ways to handle those situations, 
that are very individual and, and dependent on the situation, but we need to be open because we're not receiving just another human, but we're receiving the very spirit of Christ inside of us. And therefore, we're receiving God in that moment upon our lives. See, that's where Judas went astray. He refused to receive Christ in his heart. He refused to truly have Christ dwell in his heart. And that's why it was easy for Satan to get in there and turn him on his side to lead him to a point of destruction, to a, to a point of betrayal. But we have to be just as cautious because we can do the same thing. It's one thing to, to know Christ, but it's another thing not to believe in Christ. There's a difference in that. There are a lot of people who know of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who know of his miracles. There are a lot of people who know that he, he made the claims that he made. But to be a true follower of Christ, to truly believe in him, is to surrender our heart and say he is who he is, not just to know of it, but to truly believe it and follow it. And that marks us differently than anywhere else in the world. That marks us different than any other thought process that's out there in the world. Why? Because it's not by us anymore, but it's by God. And it's not by my will, but it's by God's will. And that's what he's setting them up for. He's setting them up to, to see what the cross is going to be. And I want you to imagine how hard it would have been for them to understand that message prior to knowing the cross. Like I said, we sit 2,000 plus years after the fact with, with 2020 vision. Knowing deep down in our hearts that, hey, he did what he did. But they didn't have that ability. But yet they still trusted that he was who he claimed to be even before seeing him raised from the grave and then ascending back into heaven, they believed who he was from what they had seen. The same testimony we have. We even have more because we know the rest of the story. And so we sit here reading John 13 and we see the servant leader come in and washing some feet and we say, oh, that's a great story. But the question is, is do we see ourselves in Peter? Do we see ourselves in G Judas? Do we accept what Christ has done for us fully and openly and take it as the gift that it is? Or do we try to put little caveats to it and, and, and little things that we need to do to prove ourselves worthy? Because I guarantee you, none of the men sitting at that table were worthy to have their feet washed by the Lord and Master, by the Lord and Teacher but yet he did each and every one of their feet, even the one who would betray him to death. None of us are worthy either of the cross, but yet he still went to the cross that we may receive it, that we may be saved by it, that we may be made whole through it. But we have to accept it and receive it upon ourselves as Peter had to receive the washing of his feet. To understand that God is great, but yet he still serves as a slave. He's willing to put himself in that position in order for us to be made whole again. And then we have to be cautious not to be like Judas, who on the backside, even though of all the knowledge he carried with him, could never release his pride, could never do whatever needed to, be ha whatever needed to happen for him to believe that Jesus Christ was Jesus Christ. To the point where it hardened his heart so much that he was open to betray Christ. Even after serving with him for three years, so we have to be cautious about that too, that we don't become so, so caught up in ourselves, so hardened by our own wants of who God is, 
or what God should be or what we want in the world and not being able to receive it because of God's plan, that it affects our heart where we're willing to betray God. But church, if we can see Jesus and we can put ourselves in that humble position to be willing to wash other people's feet, to serve others, even if their status isn't where we see our status, we'll understand Jesus much deeper and they'll move us one step closer to truly believing in who he is. When we move ourselves to that servant leadership concept, we start understanding that's not our goal that we're moving towards as Christ understood. That's what he starts with. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come that he was serving something greater, that we can get ourselves to a servant leadership, that we are moving everybody to serve something greater, God, and his will, then we'll start understanding where we fit inside the picture, what it means to be under his grace and what it means to be his child. So all this comes down to where do we stand? Are, are we going to lead others, whether it's our children, whether it's those co-workers, whether those people that we work with, or whether they're people who we may actually truly lead in some administrative way or, or some other form. Are we going to lead as Jesus taught us? Humbly willing to put ourselves down at a level even below maybe theirs so that they can move forward into a place of strength? See, he's trying to get them prepared for their ministry. He's trying to give them every tool that he can in these last few chapters that we're, going to co- or that we're covering in the next few months to get them ready to be effective in the ministry of the gospel. And this is the first lesson he starts with, is one, humble yourselves enough that you're willing to go to a place of servitude in a way that you would never imagine yourself being placed in a place of servitude. How far will that go with a non-believer who's having a difficult time when you enter into a relationship with them where you don't hold your self-esteem, where you need to step up here, but you step down and help push them to where they need to be. See, that's exactly what Doug's class is looking at. It's looking at the fact that we need each other to hold each other accountable to move us forward in the process that Christ has for us. From a place of humbleness and walking beside going, I've been there, I've done that, I've experienced that before in my life. And so my challenge to you today as we And the lesson is this. How can you serve as Christ served? How can you lead as Christ led? What is your next step? And how are you going to answer the call? Amen.